This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Don't change that dial. It's time for Navigating the Newsroom. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Andrew. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to episode number seven of Navigating the Newsroom with Andrew and Andrew. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Andrew Robinson. And this is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted exclusively to discussion and analysis of the HBO series The Newsroom. How are you doing today, Andrew? I'm doing quite fine. And you? I'm doing well myself, and we are privileged to be joined today by a very special guest. She is a writer for Film School Rejects, Real Vixen, and Cineboobs. And the fact that she writes for a site called Cineboobs automatically makes her awesome. Allison <laughs> Maureen, thank you for joining us today on the show. Of course. Thanks for having me. Well, the episode we're going to be talking about today is episode number six in the first season of The Newsroom. It's an episode entitled Bullies, and it was written by Aaron Sorkin, of course, and it was directed by Jeremy Pedeswa, and uh, it has a few guest stars as well, including Terry Crews and David Crumholtz. So, Andrew, why don't you give us a brief recap of the episode? So, this week, a legally blind man set the world record for archery in the Olympics, people. Why are we talking about the newsroom? All right, I'm sorry, let's talk about the newsroom. Um, I'm sorry, guys, Olympics is on, I love sports, I apologize. You're spoiling season two of the show. Come on, you gotta stop that. Uh, things happen in the real world, people, they do. I'll pretend like I actually know those things. So, this week in the newsroom... Not only does Will McAvoy have to go to his psychiatrist and get tricked into sitting down for more than 10 minutes, he has a bodyguard by the name of Terry Crews due to the fact that Will McAvoy thought he could fix the internet by taking out anonymity. And how dare he? So he got a death threat um, through the comments of his website. Olivia Munn, we found out, speaks Japanese because she totally put words into another man's mouth for no reason. And we also have the story of learning how the hell Maggie still has a job at the newsroom. I'm not sure if I'm leaving anything out. I don't think I am, but that's all I remember from the newsroom. What do you guys remember? <laughs> I, I think you pretty much pretty much covered it. Um, Allison... Let me uh, ask you first, what did you think of this episode? And also, since it's your first time here on the program, uh, what are your thoughts on this season of the newsroom so far in general? Yeah, um, I have a very weird relationship with the newsroom. I tune in every week religiously to watch it. I was lucky enough to get to watch the pilot episode during the Los Angeles Film Festival. Um, like I believe it was a few days before it premiered. So I got to watch it on the big screen with a live audience and then do a Q&A with Sorkin and the director um, and producer of that pilot episode right afterwards. And I thought the pilot was just so brilliant. I really was immediately in love with the show, the tone and everything about it. And then ever since that pilot episode, I've had like this very weird love-hate relationship with the show where I don't really understand what's happening to the women on it. They seem to be falling apart more and more every week, this week especially, so I don't know. I mean, I'm a fan of it in some senses, but I have a lot of issues with it, too. So it's kind of a tumultuous relationship for me. Well, Andrew, I know we've, we've both had mixed feelings about the show. 
this episode is largely being uh, proclaimed by critics as one of the better episodes in the season so far. Would you agree with that assessment? I'm not quite sure, because there are definitely things that I enjoyed. And, I mean, the the set piece in the middle, well, actually, I think we should be able to call it, at the very least, a set piece of Olivia Munn finally taking up a news desk and having her moment in the spotlight, which doesn't turn out so well, is pretty much the perfect thing you could give Aaron Sorkin to do. I have to say, like, when I started out this, this podcast, y- you heard me say it, Andrew, I, the biggest worry I had over this show was the fact that Olivia Munn was in it, because I just have yet to find anything to believe that she does anything but pander, and this show is everything but that, and I love it just for that fact. So you were you a fan of Olivia Munn's performance in this episode and her storyline? I was so very much. Okay. Uh, well, you mentioned earlier that we sort of discovered that it's kind of a miracle that Maggie still has a job. I kind of agree. I'm not sure why she still has a job. And even Jim at one point in the episode said, you know, how were you not fired? Do either of you find that unrealistic, the fact that she's still around? It's confusing. I I agreed with Jim when he, you know, as... Jim is kind of, I think, the audience in a lot of senses because he's new to this whole environment as much as we are. He's trying to learn how they do things, who these players are already, you know, that working with Will, and he's coming in kind of with fresh eyes. And I agree with him, you know, as he learns more and more about Maggie and her past at the workplace, it is kind of confounding. How does she continue to work there? She's been promoted a couple of times, it seems like. Um, but I find her entire situation really confusing, particularly in the pilot when she was very apprehensive to show signs of her relationship um, with one of the senior producers. She didn't want that to affect the way people looked at her at work. And she seems so cognizant of her role there and of, you know, trying to keep her career on a certain path. And, you know, you find out that she makes these silly mistakes and now she's fighting with her boyfriend in front of everybody and kissing him on the stairs. And she doesn't seem to have that same, you know, awareness of how she's behaving at work like she did in the very first episode. I'm not quite sure where she's going or where Sorkin might be going with her character. But, um, yeah, I I don't understand entirely why she's still employed there, or at least not in the mailroom sorting mail. (laughs) Well, let me ask you, Allison, one of the main topics that seems to come up almost every week here on Navigating the Newsroom is the show's depiction of women and how... In many instances, it constantly seems to be undermining its its female characters, particularly Maggie and Mackenzie. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel that that has been a major problem? I do. I do. I was just so disappointed because, you know, like I, I'll keep going back to the pilot that really was where I felt they were the strongest. I understood that Maggie's young. I could identify with that. You know, she's in this relationship. You know, it is what it is. But she seemed very professional. And then Mackenzie came in also seemed to have some romantic history with Will, but, you know, she also is trying to be very professional, have conversations about it behind closed doors, keep that private, you know, just, you know, give a very professional look to the rest of the staff. And then by the second episode or third, I don't remember which, she's chasing, you know, Will's dates through the newsroom to see what their deal is. She's sending out inappropriate emails accidentally, but it's very scatterbrained and it's not the impression I got of her. So, I'm not sure why these women seem to be kind of falling apart at the seams with each episode. 
Yeah, it is. It is kind of strange that you know, in in, in some situations, there'll be the most professional, uh, competent female employees here at the newsroom that you, you could ever imagine, and yet. Next thing you know, they'll be practically falling down yeah. and just it, – it, it's just odd, um, th- that dichotomy. How did you think McKinsey was, came off in this episode? I thought she came off better yeah. than she has in, in, in previous episodes, um, though I still think it's a shame Will has to lie to her about right. their relationship. But, but what was your opinion of that? I thought, you know, I mean, she was in this episode less than she normally is, um, which might have been why I thought that she kind of had her act together a little bit more. I did like that in this episode, we're learning a little bit more about Will in a way separate from Mackenzie telling us about him. You know, she's so far really been his kind of background, his history. Obviously, he wasn't a very open person to his staff before she got there. And she's kind of the one who will say, he's a big teddy bear. He would do anything for you guys. You just don't know him. And that's all well and good to a point. But even that, to me, feels like she shouldn't be saying stuff like that. He's technically her boss. It seems to be blurring the lines that she seemed to be setting so clear at the beginning Um, But in this episode, you know, she wasn't in it as much. And we were kind of learning more about Will and his background through his therapist. And I thought that was a much more interesting way to kind of color who Will is, what his background is, why he may behave the way he does from a much more objective point of a therapist rather than an ex-lover like Mackenzie, where I feel like she's obviously really biased in how she looks at Will. And she's just always so kind of falling all over herself whenever she's around him. But then when they're kind of separated, she seems to have her act a little bit more together, which maybe is because she's still in love with him. It's supposed to be this undercurrent or whatnot. But, you know, as a woman in the workforce, I think that you can kind of keep your emotions in check while you're at work and deal with it later. So I think it's a little ridiculous that these women don't seem to be able to do that all the time. You brought up the whole subplot with Will going to therapy. Andrew, what did you think of that whole that that that, that little storyline that was introduced? I I didn't take too I, I'm not going to say too kindly that's wrong. Um, I I didn't really think too much of it because I just viewed it as a plot device in order to create a story that they had over these few days to explain as to why Will is having a bodyguard or. What happened to Sloane when they bring that up in the in the in the story? When he, I, I, I think the most effective moment of the whole um, session itself had to be when he when he brought up the fact that he knows that his staff is scared of him and he doesn't like he he doesn't like the idea that they're scared of him, or did he more say that he doesn't know how he feels that they're scared of him? You brought it up, um, Allison, about the idea of Mackenzie saying, you know, he's just a big teddy bear. Um, and I know so many people in my life who come off as very abrasive or scary is a, is a, is a slight word that you would use for it. But at the end of the day, you know that they are a big teddy bear and they're more than just that, that loud shell that you have on the outside. I, I wanted to know from you guys, how did, how did that session itself bring Will into a better light or did it at all? Um, I I didn't mind that whole storyline. I'm very curious to see if that will continue and if Will will keep going to therapy. Um, anytime I see a show in which the protagonist is kind of a cold, angry, 
guarded individual, kind of like an anti-hero. Anytime I see a show like that where, where the protagonist is in therapy, I automatically think of The Sopranos, mm-hmm. uh, particularly those first few seasons, which were almost largely about you know Tony being in therapy. And while I think that can be a very useful device in helping us learn about a character, part of me feels like it's been done to death and it's almost kind of cliche at this point. But I, I don't know. I'll have to, we'll have to see how it develops. Allison, what did you think? I mean, I definitely liked the kind of back and forth between Will and um, I forget the therapist's name, but David Krumholtz's character playing his new therapist. I kind of, I kind of liked the way that they interacted with one another, where Will is so gruff and David's character was just very kind of methodical in the sense that he was not turned off by it, not scared by it, just kind of took the hits and just waited for Will to kind of feel comfortable enough to reveal what he was asking and wanting to know about him, which I thought was a little different side of Will, which obviously makes sense when you're in therapy, you're going to be a little bit different than you normally are. Um, But I agree. I mean, I hope it's not a weekly thing that now we find out about Will through his therapy sessions rather than, you know, a different way of structuring the episode. Um, But I I think it for Will as a person, I think it's important he goes to therapy. He has a lot of issues and things that he clearly needs to work through. I I found it very interesting the way he reacted to going. He just wanted a prescription and then he ended up talking. And even though he kept saying, you know, why am I still talking to you? He kept doing it. So it seemed to reveal a little bit more about his character than we might have found out in any other way. So what's going on? I need something to help me sleep. Why? I can't sleep. Why? I don't know. Any recent change in diet? I haven't changed my diet since college. You should. I invented a new sandwich, scrambled eggs, bacon, and melted cheese on toast. I make two of them every night before I get into bed. You invented an egg McMuffin. Getting enough exercise? I have to scramble the eggs. And other than that? No. Look, uh, any kind of sleeping pill will do. Sure. Let's just talk a little bit. Oh, God, please listen up. You're still taking Effexor? No. Clonazepam? No. Ativan? No. Four years ago, you were on 135 milligrams of Effexor plus clonazepam and Ativan at bedtime. I'm not anymore. Why is that? I was cured. These are all anti-anxiety medications. And I have no more anxiety. Except for not being able to sleep. Right. So if you'll just give me a prescription for some yeah, kind I'm, of... I'm going to. Just a few more questions. Okay. Any extra stress at work? Extra stress? Yeah. No. No extra stress? No. One more question. Sure. What are you fucking around with me for? I do think that it, that it can work as a as a device. I'm not sure how I feel about uh, David Krumholtz's character as a therapist, and 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 how the writers, how Aaron Sorkin in particular, uh, wrote the session. It it did seem kind of weird to me that out of nowhere he would suddenly be like, "Oh, so your father beat you, right?" Yeah, that was a little out of the blue. <laughs> Yeah, and I and I was sitting there and I was thinking, okay, I understand, you know, you need to be up front, you need to get this on the table and, and you know, break through Will's barriers, and then we as the audience also need to learn this information about him. But I was thinking in the back of my mind, that's not how real therapy works. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. It was certainly a shock value moment um, for the audience, I'm sure. He was using it as a shock value to get Will to kind of give him some more than he was. Um, but yeah, no, I'm sure that's not how real therapy goes. 
Yeah, I, my, my my immediate thought was, where were you licensed? Yeah. You know, where did you study? I I, I, I want to know your credentials because I'm not sure you should be uh, practicing therapy. But uh, yeah, that, that that was kind of awkward. Did you have an issue with that, Andrew, or you didn't care? I I didn't really take that much issue with it. I think my my biggest reason for why I didn't was um, I, I I'm trying to remember if this came up yet in the episode at that point, but I don't think it did. When Will, as as I mentioned, brought up the idea of his staff being scared of him, and then coming around to the Sloan plotline and her being at the news desk, and Will's advice to her about how do you get these guys to come on the record on the show to answer the big questions without just letting them go, and his response to them was just keep asking them the question until they have to respond to it, and that's exactly what occurred in the actual um, session itself, which was happening at that point. Where he just he just kept going at him until he until he forced Will to open up and be honest about what was happening in his life, and that's kind of why I I took it for what it was as opposed to being affected by anything in it. Well, you're right that he does sort of keep going after Will, but he 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 does so in a way that's not very aggressive and isn't very threatening. Um, you know, the title of the episode is bullies and the whole episode is is really about people kind of bullying each other and and lording power over each other and i you know while the therapist character really did sort of keep at him and and try to uh get him to talk about these things he didn't do so in a way that would make me consider him a bully and i think that was the main difference I th- to, to me, but uh, Allison, you were going to say something earlier. I was, and I've completely forgotten what my point was going to be. Um, but I do, I do agree with what you guys are saying. That I, you know, obviously the therapist was kind of grilling Will, making him talk about things he didn't necessarily want to talk about. But his way of doing that didn't seem, you know, as though he were bullying him. Whereas with Sloane. She was acting a little bit like a bully this episode. Will obviously was kind of acting like a bully in his interview. Um, but what I found interesting, I was watching the episode recap today, and what Will actually said to Sloan was, don't let them off the hook. Ask the big questions. If they're lying to you, keep asking the question, but present them with evidence as to why what they're saying is untrue. Don't just say you're a liar. That's not what you told me. You know, he wanted her to bring up things that would kind of make him have to admit to what he had told her earlier, whereas I know we'll get into later, she kind of circumvented all those steps and went right to what she knew. Granted, it was off the record and presented a whole bunch of different problems, but he really wanted her to kind of be more of a journalist and, and or not even a journalist, be more of a prosecutor, as is Will's background, and present facts and kind of try to use those facts to prove that person wrong and have them then eventually admit that they're admit that they're lying rather than the person interviewing them just come out and say, I know you're lying. That doesn't mean anything to anyone. You have to explain why or prove why you think that. Right. That that is a good point. She did kind of take his his advice in the wrong direction. But before we get onto that, um, I, there, there's one more thing I want to talk about, and that is the show's depiction of the internet. We've <laughs> talked about this a few times on on navigating the newsroom, and every once in a while it'll pop up. And you know, we've talked about how when he was uh, working on the social network, Sorkin said that you know he didn't really care for Facebook and social media and, and, and the internet. 
And in interviews, he's kind of implied that he feels the internet has sort of, in, you know, in many ways diluted uh, the, the field of journalism. Here we see the internet pop up in the, in the form of comments and internet trolls and commenters who don't have anything to, productive to say and uh, comment on Will's website and make inappropriate remarks. And then when stricter commenting policies are introduced, uh, Will ends up getting a death threat. So, uh, Allison, what did you think of that depiction of the internet as just a place where uneducated, anonymous trolls go to be dicks? Yeah, Will, as a character, has some issues with where he's always talking about how he's trying to, you know, educate and civilize people, and it's his responsibility, which is obviously very pretentious and very condescending because he obviously considers himself better than a lot of people, knows more than a lot of people. And he's certainly a smart man. He's certainly well-spoken. You know, he's brilliant to listen to in a lot of ways. But at the same time, you know, he is a bully. He comes at people way too aggressively. And he's so black and white, you know, they're trying to kind of bring, you know, reader comments into his show. So it doesn't look like Will's just attacking everybody. And he attacks the comments. He hates that they're anonymous. So he immediately decides if we're going to do this, it has to be my way. And it has to be full disclosure. And he has all these rules then set in for his comments. And I understand where he's coming from, but he does so in such a gruff and black and white way that it doesn't allow for anyone to, you know, offer a different opinion or come up with maybe a different idea. And, you know, I agree. I don't particularly know how Sorkin looks at the Internet, but the way he depicted it in this episode, it's not just people trolling for comments. You know, it kind of made me sad when um, they were saying, you know, these are the best comments that we could get to put on the air with these ludicrous usernames that, you know, he's like, why did I say lollipop like 14 times? You know, who's ever said that as many times as I have? I understood that. And I understand that frustration. You know, we're all writers online. We know that there can be very harsh comments and it does stink when it comes from anonymous people who you can't engage with for a bigger conversation. So I understand what he was attempting to do or what Sorkin was attempting to express, but it was, you know, done in this very gruff and black and white way. But at the same time, you know, it's an episode about bullying. So maybe that was the point is that, you know, Will doesn't realize what a bully he is and he does it in a lot of different facets of his relationships with people. Okay, that is completely true that in one way, Will is being viewed as the bully, even towards the internet. But in the last two weeks of the internet being a cycle of death threats for all critics who have negatively reviewed The Dark Knight Rises for such an example, and even I've, I've been seeing a lot of um, comments coming up online um, from people like Scott Weinberg saying as to how the comment section is pretty much the most useless section of the internet and while i don't fully agree with that statement it does beg to dif it does beg to question that if the comments is and i know this isn't true for all websites but it is for a good value of them if the comment section is 80% lollipop lollipop what value does it give us no and i completely agree um you know i understand 
you know, when I get comments, I hope that it's from people that I can actually write back to have a conversation with, even if they disagree with what I'm saying, you know, that's part of it, whether they agree or not, you know, I want to get into a conversation. So I totally understand, you know, the point there where they're trying to hold people accountable. You can't just say whatever you want. You know, we want you to back up your opinion, have a bigger conversation, not just be trolling around and saying things with no consequence to it. I 100% agree to that. So you know, my whole thing was, you know, I agreed with Will, maybe there should be some different parameters to commenting on his particular website to try to get those comments and get those people to respond to him. But I think he just went to a very extreme place with it, maybe. And I mean, the death threat was certainly an extreme consequence of him deciding to put those different restrictions on his comment section. Well, I personally just kind of found the, the, the whole situation a bit unrealistic, because while it is not uncommon for news networks to frequently go to Twitter or either internet comments or, or something, you know, and, and bring them up during a broadcast. You know, I feel like those would be cleared before right. the broadcast. And I kind of feel like, you know, Neil afterwards says, oh, well, these were the two best comments we could get. And I, in the back of my head, I was thinking, really? Right, yeah. You know, even if 80% of your comments on on a news website are just trolls, surely there would be one or two fairly intelligent, uh, rational people who would post something that you could then quote on the show. And if not, then why even have that segment on your broadcast to begin with? Andrew, I, 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 I agree with you 100%, but I think, I, think for, I think you might just be missing the point because it's the same thing with the, the first episode of this show where you, you jumped up and down saying, how dare Jim have two contacts who's willing to fold just for the sake of getting this news story out. The coincidence is there just to make a point. Sorkin while he has a completely skewed version of the internet in his mind, he's trying to make a point. And that point is a valid point. Maybe he uses ridiculous scenarios like what we have here to to make that point valid, but it's still a point. So is the conclusion that we've reached over these six episodes of the newsroom basically that we should not expect the show to be grounded in accuracy? It's only the news. Who, who's accurate about that? <laughs> I think that with the newsroom, and Sorkin said this after um, the pilot episode when they were doing the Q&A, because the woman um, moderating it was very much kind of on him about this is a very, you know, rose-colored version of how the news would ever work. You're taking news from two years ago that you now have all the facts and hindsight to look at and report on it in a perfect and, you know, well-orchestrated way. So, of course, you know, Will McAvoy and his team look amazing and brilliant because no one has that kind of advantage to know exactly how a story will play out and how to then handle it. So, I mean, he did admit that it's supposed to be pretty much for entertainment. It's not necessarily supposed to be, you know, more than that, um, which I understand. And as these episodes are going on, I'm starting to realize obviously is the point because, you know, a therapist wouldn't come right out and say, oh, so your dad beat you as a kid within five seconds of a session. And, you know, some of these more extreme situations maybe have a little bit of a rose colored or fantastical tinge to them where 
maybe that's not how it would happen in reality, but I think Sorkin is presenting them because he does have a point. He's trying to say, you know, people shouldn't just be trolling the internet. People shouldn't just say death threats with no consequence to it. You know, all of these things matter and they should be paid attention to, which I do agree with. Look, guys, this is the equivalent to the 90s television of the anti-sex and smoking episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be an internet troll. (laughs) It's a horrible thing. Is there a partnership for a troll-free America? (laughs) Can I I join that? And there should be a Clint Eastwood PSA where he comes out and says, don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh well, well, well. You mentioned the the, the death threat, um, Allison. I one of the interesting things that the episode did bring up was the fact that you know after they had implemented this new commenting system, it was supposedly such a secure commenting <laughs> system that there's no there, there's pretty much no way a normal person could make that death threat. Which I think is definitely an interesting, you know, development. I'm not sure how grounded in reality it is, but I was kind of intrigued, and and, and I I'm hoping that that will, you know, play a role in the future. I agree. I agree with that. Are are you are you asking for more death threats? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. I say that I I want them to develop that. On the other hand, I don't want the season t- finale to be Will McAvoy getting shot. Right, gunned down in the street. Yeah, that would be a little bit melodramatic as if Aaron Sorkin is saying, you know, oh, look at this guy. He tried to change journalism and the world just couldn't handle it. They weren't ready and uh, now he's going to get shot. And, uh, well, it's like him yelling, you know, I'm going to change the internet. He says these outlandish statements, but it's like we understand what you're trying to do to a point, but then it, it, you almost ruin it by saying these ridiculous things and then, you know, you get a death threat and it's like, Oh, gosh, you know, you're not changing the Internet. The Internet is what it is. You have to work within what it is. You know, it's not good. It's not bad. It's just how we communicate now. And it is a new form of communication with bumps and hiccups and things happen. But Will is very black and white. And I think that's a big issue for him. Like he gets the death threat. and He doesn't even care. He's like, that doesn't mean anything. It's fine. It's on the Internet. It's words. It's not real. Right. But, you know, that's how people get threats these days. It's not, you know, cut out little pieces of paper that they get mailed all the time. And it could be just as serious. Well, to be fair, if every single Internet comment that was that, that could be read as a death threat were heavily policed, I'm not sure what kind of world we would live in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, think about how many websites there are out there where, where people have commented saying, you know, Obama should be should be right. shot or, you know, right. something should happen. I, I, I mean, I feel like in some ways Will was right to say this isn't a big deal. This kind of thing just happens. And that's that's the environment we live in. I agree. I, I mean, it's it's. I probably would have had a similar reaction to him, I think, in some ways that you just are like, oh, well, what does that really mean? But at the same time, I get it from his station's point of view, where it's their website, they're monitoring it very closely, and so they have to take something like that seriously. But, you know, for it to be such a to-do where he's fighting with his bodyguard, you know, I would just be like, fine, do what you have to do, I'll ignore it. I don't think it's a big deal, but if you have to do what you have to do, then, you know, I don't really have a say in it, I guess. I, I, I mean, we live in a world in which film critics received death threats two weeks ago for posting negative right. reviews of The Dark Knight. So, fortunately, it seems to be a fairly common occurrence nowadays. One other thing I, I 
do want to bring up. Allison, have you seen The West Wing or, or any of Sorkin's other TV work? I sadly have not. And this show, I've been wanting to watch The West Wing for a very long time. I know it's a big undertaking, so I keep putting it off. But watching this show really, really makes me want to go back and watch it. I have a coworker who watched it religiously, is starting to watch the newsroom, and has been telling me some of the comparisons and things like that. I think it would benefit my newsroom viewing if I had seen The West Wing. Um, but I definitely want to see that work of Sorkin because I think um, definitely by comparison, it would be really interesting to see what he did and what he's doing now. I'm not sure if you if you should watch it now, though, because uh, I'll, I'll be honest, The West Wing is a better show. Well, yeah, that's what I've heard. <laughs> <the newsroom. laughs> yeah. So it's, it's very similar themes and plot lines will, will pop up. Right. And I can't help but thinking, oh, that was handled so much uh, better on the well, West Yeah, because whenever we have a discussion about an episode and any criticism or hang up I had with it, he'll say, you know, oh, they did something like that on the West Wing, but it was like everything you want they did on the West Wing. So it sounds like the West Wing is my dream show. <laughs> and this this right. isn't quite hitting the mark for me. Uh, there was an episode of the West Wing in which one of the characters found uh, basically an online fan blog oh, okay. devoted to him. Oh, and got into that whole realm of com- internet commenting and that whole side of the internet. Uh, there, was, there was also a brief subplot where one of the characters did have a bodyguard because of some death threats. And that subplot, unfortunately, ended with the bodyguard being killed. Okay. Uh, so I'm hoping Sorkin doesn't go the same route here. I mean, I'll be honest. I want Terry Crews to stick around so he can... <laughs> tell Will McAvoy to, to use Old Spice, you know, right. and be a source of good comic relief. I mean, what else do you want other than watching Olivia Munn ask to touch his pecs? I was just going to bring that up. What a, what a professional lady. Oh, hi, there's a nice big man in your office. Can I feel him up? We're at work. Hi. You know, th- th- there was a part of my brain that was like, oh, Sorkin, why do you keep undermining your, your female characters and making them so ditzy? And then the other part of my brain was like, you know what? That's totally what Sloan would do. Well, no, it's completely what her character would do. But it just drove me absolutely nuts because I was like, really? I mean, of course. <laughs> and, you know, then she's so shocked when Will's like, you're not, you know, you don't take things very seriously. And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, you just felt up his bodyguard, Sloan. He doesn't really take you seriously. <laughs> Well, well, speaking of Sloan, let, let's dive into our main topic for the evening, which is how she handled this situation with the uh, with the nuclear meltdown in Japan and um, her whole unethical gaffe that she made on the air and how they fixed it. Allison, what did you think of that subplot involving her character? We already talked a bit about how she she took Will's advice in the wrong direction. How do you feel about the show's presentation of of the ethics of that situation? Well, I, I thought it was a really, really interesting topic to take on. And the way they did it was, I thought it was well done. You know, I understood that when she was first doing the pre-interview, she was doing it simply because she was translating it. She wasn't doing it to get information for an interview she would later be doing. She found out about that after the pre-interview was over. And then, of course, she gets that advice from Will that she takes sort of the wrong way. And I understood that she was really excited to have this opportunity to kind of, you know, be on for Elliot and be on at 10 and see if she could do it and then have this interview with someone that she knew and she knew some information that she wanted to have come to light on air and 
obviously the wheels just kind of came off the bus and she got not, I don't want to say emotional, but I understood that she's looking at someone lying to her and she's hearing Will's voice in her head saying they lie to you all the time. You just let them do it, which she I'm sure assumes as a weak point for her. So she's trying to prove everyone wrong and get this guy to say the truth and doesn't do so in, in the best or most ethical way. So I thought it was really interesting that, you know, you can see how she is so caught up in the moment and everything just goes to heck. And then when she walks back into that newsroom, she 100% understands that she screwed up. She's very ashamed. She's hanging her head. She knows that she crossed the line. And the only thing that really irked me was when Charlie came down on her, which she totally deserved. But then of course he has to call her girl, which luckily she did stand up for herself and say, don't call me girl, sir, which is still at least professional and, you know, not condescending. But then the fact that he has to call her girl for the rest of the episode as his weird way of being like, she doesn't deserve to have a name because she screwed up because no one else in that newsroom has ever screwed up. That part kind of annoyed me, but I, I understood like, you know, she was trying to prove herself and it, it just went in the wrong direction very quickly. Andrew, your thoughts. Well, before I really get into my thoughts and I've taken a lot of the, the notions of the condescension and the sexism, misogyny, related in the show, and a lot of them are slightly founded, I find. But while the the girl comment is ridiculously harsh, it's it's, it's something that, that hits your ears and you immediately have a gut reaction to, one that you, you see what Sloan did. I, I wonder, and I want you guys to chime in, if this show was actually like a sports show, where it was set with a sports team, and we were talking about people all in a slightly more loose, not so much professional environment, would you have issues with the way people, let's say, condescend to each other on a, on a minute-to-minute basis in this show? In in, in what sense? What, what, what do you mean? What, what kind of environment are you... Let's say, for example, a football team, and we're talking about the, 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 the administration versus the players, the... The, the fans versus the administration, all of those kind of things. But it's the same story, it's just in a football stadium. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I still think there, there is a problem with it. I mean, obviously, Charlie is trying to show that he's the boss. He is trying to demean her and, and basically imply, you're just a lowly reporter. I own this network. You have to, you have standards you have to live up to. I do think that for him to continue that throughout the episode right. was going a bit too far. Because it, 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 it did pop up later. It did. And in the moment when he's yelling at her and says it, and you can see that he kind of says it in a flash of fury, and then she immediately is like, don't do that. And he kind of backs down a little bit. And recognizes, okay, shouldn't have called her that a little too far. And then they kind of part ways. That, I was fine with that. I understood that, okay, you know, it gets your ear. It makes you sit up when you hear that. You know, you're like, oh, gosh, okay. But then for him to come back into the newsroom later and just be screaming it to try to find her as she's packing up her office. You know, she's completely just dressed down she's beaten she knows that she's screwed up she has nothing you know to hold on to to like save her here 
and he does, but instead of coming to her, you know, it's always out in this bullpen where like everyone's, you know, business is aired out there, which drives me nuts because in the pilot, they were so good of, you know, everyone go into this office who needs to be in here to hear this. Not everyone needs to know what's going on. And Sloan does not need Charlie, you know, walking through the newsroom, calling her girl in front of everybody and demeaning her again and then being like, Hey, A, you were right. B, you have to go on the air and say that you don't know how to speak Japanese and you're just a dumb lady and, oh, I didn't know what I was doing. But you're also right and we're going to tell everyone that you were right, so whatever. And I was just like, this is so many things and you're yelling girl at her on top of it all. Like, this poor woman staying there and she's like, what am I supposed to be doing? Yeah, I I, I have had a lot of mixed feelings about that. But, uh, Andrew, what did you feel about the whole ethical situation that unfolded and how it was handled well first of all obviously um sloan was in the wrong she shouldn't have let out that information that she knew secretly she shouldn't have switched into japanese as she did during the interview she 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 shouldn't have attacked even the 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 interpreter maybe she could have approached it slightly differently she didn't have to do her best will impression in which she badgers the the woman into into a into basically not admitting, but telling her that that she doesn't know what she's saying or she's doing this on purpose. Because the thing is that while while Will will always be that bully, and we see a lot of it towards the end of this episode, he very much, for the most part, never pushes intent upon the people he is discussing, he's arguing with. He will push the fact that you are leaving something out, you are ignoring something, you are not bringing this to light, but he will never push intent. And that's what Sloan did. That was the biggest mistake that she made. Now, as it comes to the second half of the discussion, which is the the effect of what she did, I'm going to be a horrible person and admit I took it for comedy. <laughs> I, I I laughed myself silly watching Charlie Skinner come into that room and call her girl. I mean, I, I you mentioned it, and it's kind of why I asked that question. I take that 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 news desk, that news floor, to be a bullpen. I take it to be a sports room. I kind of view it as these are the players, and we have the administration above. And once in a while, someone's going to come down, and they're going to call me kid for no apparent reason for an entire day. It, it's slightly horrible sometimes, and I mean, maybe maybe I shouldn't be thinking of it that way, but it had me in stitches. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I could see that. I mean, it was slightly comical, even though it was a very serious situation, and Charlie is a slightly comical character. I mean, he... They, you go into his office, he's playing solitaire. They joke that he's always drunk, and he's kind of like your silly granddad that's hanging around, but obviously he does help run the network. You know, when you're in trouble, Charlie's going to be the one to come call you out on it. But yeah, I mean, it was slightly funny, but I think I know I'm completely biased on it as a woman. If someone like Charlie came at me in my workplace and was reprimanding me, I would take it. But the second he said, girl, I would be like Sloan and like my eyes would light up and I'd be like, do not do that. Everything else you can say, but that you can't say. And then for him to come back and still be screaming it, that I would have such an issue with it to be like, Charlie, I can't talk to you. Like, what is your problem? Like, you clearly don't take me seriously. You don't even call me by my name anymore. Like, how is this punishment? Like, what what is the deal here? Yeah, um, I I, got to be honest, that whole subplot, 
you know, while I can, I liked how it unfolded, and I think it does work in the context of the the episode itself. The episode itself, I think, is coherent and it works. I'm not sure how well it fits into the context of the show as a whole, if that makes sense. I was thinking to myself the entire time, okay, Sloane made this mistake. Why did she make that mistake? She's been a financial reporter for years. Obviously, this is her first time headlining the show, but has she never had to do an interview before? Did she never learn basic journalism (laughs) ethics like you don't reveal something that was said off the record? It seemed a little bit convenient to me that that would happen. And I'm not sure it's in keeping with her character because up until this point in the show, she's been one of the more professional characters that we've seen. Right. Well, it it almost made me question, you know, who is running this station? You know, Charlie's obviously running the station, but it's like, Charlie, you have employed a woman who completely, or a reporter who completely flew off the handle on live television and, you know, did something really unethical. So, yes, of course, she's going to be suspended. You know, that's the natural reaction to that. But then we have Maggie kind of always making these little mistakes. And I'm not, you know, saying that these are all fireable offenses, that these people shouldn't be working there. But it does make me question, you know, kind of what's going on. You know, it seems like everyone's kind of always working on an emotional level instead of a educated or like thinking level which happens of course but sometimes I just wonder you know she does something wrong and then Charlie has a very emotional reaction to it and then you know it kind of starts to get resolved but it's still a fairly emotional reaction to the resolution it's like there's got to be some professionalism so in these little moments of people getting really upset they don't seem like it's just a big romper room it seems like more like people lost their cool for a second but it seems like it's all the time with these guys they're always running around yelling at each other and saying things maybe they shouldn't be saying i don't know well well let me ask you what did you think about the uh the solution to this problem that they found themselves in where uh sloan is basically just going to go on the air and lie and say that you know she doesn't know japanese very well she made a mistake and they're basically just going to do that in order to, you know, save the network's reputation and also to help this guy save his job. Right. I mean, I thought it was maybe the only solution they had because I don't know how else they would have explained what happened. I know that she took offense to it, but at the same time, they're trying to help her and she kind of cornered herself. Like, there's not too many outs on that situation. So I, I thought it was a convenient way to fix the situation. But if that's what's best for him and for her and for the network, that's what needs to happen. Even if she's like, that kind of ruins my reputation because I do speak fluent Japanese. That's like, yeah, some some sort of consequence has to come from what you did, though, I guess. And that's the way to get around it is that you didn't understand one of the numbers. Well, it begs the question, is that an appropriate consequence? I mean, she did break one of the most fundamental rules <laughs> of journalism i mean i think she still should have been suspended at least for like a week or something just to be like you you know there has to be some punishment um you know however that needs to be handed down but it shouldn't just be hey we found a get out of jail free card we got to fib a little bit but we'll all be better for it which i found really ironic because like the whole you know revamp of the show is that they're going to be so honest and so forthright and you know 
give everyone the facts and, you know, be very upfront about everything. And I get it. You know, they screwed up. They got to say something to kind of get themselves out of it. But I don't think that should have been like, oh, Sloan, we figured out a loophole. You're good now. We just have to make you look a little stupid. She should have still been suspended. And that all should have happened in a, you know, kind of you did this. This is your consequence type manner where rather than just, you know, I'm upset. Get out of here. Oh, wait, I found us a fix for it. You can stay. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. I feel like it's it's very hypocritical, and it sort of undermines what their whole goal with quote-unquote Newsnight 2.0 has been from the very beginning. If they are going to continue to attack the way things are done, and if they're going to continue to argue about how ratings and PR have sort of trumped good, old-fashioned ethical journalism, then they need to stick to their guns. And when the episode was over, I kind of felt like Sloan needed to be suspended just because it, it that, that's what happens. That's the natural consequence of things. And if you're going to say that you're not going to give in to ratings and PR, then you shouldn't try to put a positive PR spin on what happened. Right. And I was, I mean, I wasn't super surprised that Charlie came up with this solution and was all about it. I was much more shocked when Will was like, we can do what? Perfect. Sloan, get down here. This is exactly what we're going to, he was so quick to be like, yeah, let's lie. Let's just roll that out. That's fine. That's a good little like way to gloss over this situation where he's been such a, you know, we have to like admit to our mistakes and stand up to what we do. And he just immediately turned and did like a 180 and was like, yeah, let's do that. That's good. That'll make us look good. Which I get, you know, Will to a point is still probably concerned with ratings and things like that. That's kind of been a part of his character. But I found it a little confusing because that hasn't really been their whole goal with this show as far as Newsroom 2.0. And all of a sudden they're like, we have a fix and everything's fine. Sloan, go put your office back together, you're fine too. It's like, really? She should be punished. She did screw up. There should still be some ramifications. Right. I mean, I mean, it's clear after last week's episode in particular that Will does feel very protective about right. his staff and he does want to do right by them. Right. But at the same time, you know, it comes down to which, which, which do you prioritize more, your relationship with your staff or your integrity and your, your ethics and, and your goals as a news organization and i kind of feel like in all honesty they should have they should have just let the situation play out sloan should have been suspended for however long she needed to be suspended for uh that guy should have lost his job because th- that that's what would happen right and exactly sloan should have to live with that and also let's be honest who's going to really buy the fact that she screwed up with her Japanese. I mean, let's give credit where it's due. Olivia Munn was speaking some pretty awesome Japanese. Right. No, I agree. And I mean, you just think as a viewer, if you watch that go down, you would think, oh gosh, someone really screwed up. Like she probably wasn't, you know, A, she shouldn't have just started speaking Japanese. No one really knew what she was talking about. You know, you can see that that was flaming out. And then it, it would just be so easy for them two days later for her to come on and be like, you know what, I actually don't speak it very well, and I misunderstood. You know, you would know as an intelligent person that they're covering it up and that that was an easy way to get out of that situation. And, yeah, everyone gets off okay because of it, but you are doing a disservice to your public because, again, you're talking down to them. You think that they're like, oh, really? Well, yeah, of course she doesn't know how to speak it. You know, She was speaking it fluently on the air. Everyone saw her, so... 
And, and, and honestly, I kind of didn't have a problem with that. I didn't have a problem with the fact that she was speaking in Japanese and try, and just really hammering this guy, trying to right. get the answer she wanted. I kind of feel like, you know, Will did tell her to pull out all the stops and do what she needed to do. And I feel like, you know, she did say, hey, you're not translating me correctly. Right. And she was kind of revealing to the audience, there's some PR spin going on here that I'm trying to break through. Right. And I feel like if she had managed to get the answer she needed, it would have been totally forgivable. And it would have been portrayed as like, well, that the fact that you spoke Japanese that was a great thing. Here at Newsnight, we hire all the best reporters that know different languages and are able to cut through the BS. But it's because she crossed the line you're not supposed to cross in regards to revealing information that was off the record that I think was, was the problem. But other than that, I didn't have much of an issue with how she was handling the broadcast until that point. Well, you see... It, it- Heron lies the problem with that. There, there, there is a big issue with, the, with how she handled the broadcast. Because, first of all, yes, it's one thing to accuse the interpreter of mistranslating her, t- asking the questions, or Takeda, I think his name was, responding. And the problem with that is that regardless of how hard-hitting your questions are, you're not being understood by anyone at that point. You're making a broadcast for an English-speaking nation. And while I I'm have no issues with foreign languages, I mean, we're not talking about a broadcast in which we have live subtitles going up. It's going to be indiscernible. And the biggest issue I have with, with it there is that she had no evidence to back up the questions she was asking. It's It's one thing for a man to decide to not tell the truth. It's another thing for you to call him a liar. Right, right. And that was the whole issue. And that wasn't what Will advised her to do. His advice was, you know, if you know something and you know that this person is lying to you, you have to say, you know, well, here's this factor, here's exhibit A or here's exhibit B. But what you're saying is this and it doesn't add up and kind of paint that person to the corner of having to admit or, you know, come clean with what they're lying about. But she wasn't doing that. She was just getting very heated and getting upset at the translation. And then she goes into full Japanese, which I understood. And I know, you know, why everyone was freaking out. Like, you can't do that. No one understands what you're talking about. And obviously, in hindsight, it would have been better if she had just said, you know, you're not translating properly. You're not saying what I'm saying or saying what he's saying. So we're just going to end this interview. That would have been, you know, her good out to be like, I'm not talking to these people. They're not saying what I'm saying and, you know, lying in that sense where I speak fluent Japanese. So I know and it's a hard thing. It's a, yeah, it's an American broadcast and she starts stops speaking English, which alienates your entire audience, even if she had a point behind it. Okay, well, is there anything else either of you would li- would like to say about that whole subplot involving Sloan? Allison, it sounds like you and I are on the same page regarding their solution to the problem. Andrew, how did, how did you feel about that? The solution to the problem, I was more okay with it, mo- mainly because I understood it to be she decided to go down that road for the sole reason that she wanted to make sure that her friend could save his job. And that was a self-sacrifice and understanding her own punishment for what she did. So, so, so that felt okayish to me. I mean, yes, in if if that wasn't a factor, I'd hope that she would have decided to tell Charlie Skinner to go fuck himself, and she would have taken two weeks, two weeks suspension or whatever. 
But yeah, due to the fact that she had a relationship with her contact, and worse, what she did to that contact, it makes a lot of sense. No, I do agree with that, and that is something I kind of did forget, was that they were friends, they had a relationship, and it wasn't so much that she screwed up her own career in a sense, but she did really put his job at jeopardy when he had trusted her with some information off the record. Um, So when Charlie gave her that solution, I could see her being like, look, I'm not happy about how it's going to make me look, but if it helps him, I owe it to him to do this. I got that point of it, but... Again, I think she should still have an actual punishment of being suspended and not just, you know, have to trot out and say, oh, I screwed up. I don't know how to speak Japanese as well as I thought. She should also be suspended on top of that. Well, well, speaking of her career being in jeopardy, you know, that begs the question, where can the show go with, with this character now? You know, she's pretty... Make her not speak Japanese ever again. <laughs> only english for you <laughs> I, I i mean i guess it was charlie who who said that you know now she'll never be able to get a source to go off the record with her again so is her career damaged beyond repair at this point or will she forever be stuck just doing this five minute segment for for Newsnight? is that as high up the ladder as she'll be able to go i mean i don't know if she'll be stuck because i feel like crazy things happen all the time and you think that's going to be it and then time passes and things change but um she's the financial goal you know i think what will happen is she's not going to be doing interviews she's not going to be doing stuff like that for a while you know until people forget about this until you know not that they're going to necessarily forget but yeah it, she probably won't be getting sources to tell her anything off the record for a very long time if ever again and that's just something she's going to have to deal with but if her focus is the financials, maybe it won't affect her that much. She's not like a Will McAvoy, but um, we'll see, I guess. So do you think it's safe to assume that we'll never see an episode of The Newsroom really focused on on Sloan again and, and specifically her career? I worry that they use people like Sloan as just like planets that orbit around Will and her acting like that was just to shine a light on his own bullying and help move him along and not necessarily show us more of her to then revisit later. I feel like it's just to help develop his character in a way. So I wouldn't be surprised if we don't revisit it. I would like to, because I would like to see what's going to happen next with all of that. But from what we see happening next week, I'm sure we'll just move on to the next big topic, and this will just get kind of brushed to the side. Okay. Well, is there anything either of you... Have to have to say about the episode in general. Anything to wrap up, or have we pretty much covered it all? I think the only thing that really needs to be added at this point was I thought it meant lots of love. <laughs> <laughs> that was insane. Come on! And the only thing that tops it is you thought Russia invaded Atlanta. Yeah. Honestly, the whole Georgia mix-up. I could understand someone like Maggie making that mistake. No, 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 Andrew. That's that's condescension right there. Is that kind? Con- I don't. That's, know. that's 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 sexism right there. You can't say that. Let, let's be honest, though. Let's be honest. I get the impression as a as as a viewer that until now Maggie hadn't really been heavily involved with the news, and you know she had started off as basically just Will's secretary. So I don't get the impression that she was always super informed about everything. But maybe that's just... Me. I mean, she she does get the impression that she's a little ditzy. You know, she has, right. she has panic attacks. She can't really handle this very intense environment she's now in. She's trying. 
She, you know, her heart is in the right place. I get that. She has a good sense of humor about herself when Jim does call her out on these stupid things she's done. She was like, I don't want to hear about it. I know it is what it is. Like, let's not talk about it. I respect that in a sense. But at the same time, it makes me wonder, like, how are you still there? And how did you get to the point you're at in your career? Like, as someone working on our own career, you know, sometimes those things I do take personally because it's like, how do people who make these stupid mistakes or kind of big mistakes just keep moving forward with little to no consequence and hardworking people who try so hard can sometimes just like hit the skids from one little thing and they're out and that's it for them. And, you know, it does make me a little annoyed when it's like these like semi-cute kind of ditzy girls who are just like, tee-hee, ha-ha, I didn't really know whatever, brush it under the rug. It's ridiculous. But, you know, maybe Maggie will prove herself that up until now, I don't know what she's there to do other than make Jim a little bit crazy and kind of dink around the newsroom and fall down or whatever she does. Yeah. I I know what she's there to do. She's there to make me laugh. (laughs) She is kind of the comic relief. That's true. (laughs) I, I can buy the idea that Maggie might not know Georgia was a country more than if, say, Sloan didn't know that georgia was right right i agree i cannot buy that she would not know what lol means i mean now if will said i didn't know what lol means i would believe it because will obviously doesn't know anything about how the internet works right right but i feel like maggie should know these things you know why why isn't newsnight 2.0 heavily involved in social media and and why isn't neil constantly tweeting why isn't there a facebook page why aren't they constantly talking about in, in, in meetings about their their digital presence, you know, and their their brand and how they're going to present it online? I, I I don't understand why that isn't a bigger part of the show. But because it was two years ago and the internet didn't matter. Oh no, I'm kidding. That's not oh, that, that's that's true. <laughs> I forgot. That's not right. Hold on. Al, Al Gore hadn't really invented it yet and kicked yeah, things exactly. off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it's a good point. It doesn't make sense. I mean, it's funny when Charlie comes out and yells at a random person, get on the Twitter and says a soliloquy. And she's like, I have 140 characters. He's like, make it work. That's funny. We all get that. That plays to you know our common knowledge of how Twitter works. But yeah, I mean, come on. She's young. You know, she probably has some idea of what LOL means. That was stupid. But on top of it, it, it was a really big mistake in a lot of ways as well. And for them just to be like, oh, Maggie. Har har, and then the laugh track comes in. It's like, what does this girl do at this news station? How does she still have a job there? I totally agreed with Jim when he was like, what in the heck? How does this keep happening? You know, Sorkin's first TV show, Sports Night, did have a laugh track its first season. Do you think the newsroom could benefit from a laugh track? A laugh track, yes. (laughs) No. No, don't do it to me again. All right. Well, if no one has anything else to add, I think that'll wrap it up for this episode of Navigating the Newsroom. Allison, thank you very much for joining us on today's show. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. As always, you can subscribe to Navigating the Newsroom through iTunes. Uh, You can also find all of our episodes at filmgeekradio.com. And be sure to check out other great podcasts at Film Geek Radio, like Cinema Fix and The Thin Place. And uh, speaking of The Thin Place, if you guys are are fans of uh, The Dark Knight Rises and you're listening, go check out the new episode of The Thin Place about The Dark Knight Rises. It's a very, very interesting discussion about the, the philosophy of that film. So Andrew, before we go, what if I don't like the dark Knight rises other than that? I should kill myself. What should, what, (laughs) what, what what, should I, should I be listening to the thin place as well? 
if you don't like The Dark Knight Rises, which I think is a perfectly legitimate response <laughs> to The Dark Knight Rises, then, um, you know... The don't internet is out there, anything. Andrew. Be free. Be afraid. <laughs> the internet is out there. Oh, shoot. We're, we're going to get some death threats now because I said that. Oh, man. But, um, you know, don't listen to that episode of The Thin Place, but maybe listen to another episode of The Thin Place. Oh, okay. Place. All right. Yeah. <laughs> As always, we would love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at navigatingnewsroom at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website. Allison, where can people find more of your work? Uh, people can find me writing for filmschoolrejects.com, Real Vixen, and Real is spelled R E E L, the play on film, um, dot com, as well as cineboobs.com, all my very inappropriately named websites. And you can find me on Twitter at Allison Loring, my full name, all one word, all lowercase, very simple. Now, just to clarify, Cineboobs.com is not one of those websites where it just lists all of the uh, times you can find nudity. In, in no, that's Mr. Like that. Skin. Okay. <laughs> this is more girls, kind of. It's, it's more like a, a Tumblr um, where we kind of post articles and photos and things about film and TV that we come across that we think are either funny or pertinent or interesting. So, no, nothing about how many times you can see boobs in a movie. <laughs> Okay, just wanted to make that clear in case yeah. any of our listeners are like, oh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to check out Cineboobs if, if that's what it's about. <laughs> well, no, you should check it out. It's safe for work, I promise. Yes. <laughs> all right, Andrew, where can people find you online? They can find all of my writings over at gmainreviews.com. They can go and listen to my other podcast where I talk to some real friends who who don't who don't who don't mock me for for laughing at good television. Um, <laughs> Uh, over at the Unnamed Movie Podcast or Tump. <laughs> okay. All right. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash writer Andrew. You can always find me at Film Geek Radio. Occasionally I will publish uh, articles there on, uh, at the blog extension. Um, and as always, we would love to hear from you. All right, Andrew, sign us off. I don't know how to really sign us off this week except to say, guys, the Olympics is on. Did you not see Lord Voldemort fighting Mary Poppins? This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!